Welcome to a special episode of First Fuel. This week we held the 11th Annual National Energy Efficiency Conference, which for obvious reasons we delivered digitally for the very first time. We've taken the opportunity to try out a few new formats. One of my favourite additions has been the Sundowner sessions. They've been an opportunity for me to catch up with a political leader for a relaxed chat, the kind of conversation you'd usually have after the event is wrapped. Everyone is off the stage and you've got a beer in your hand. So, at the end of day one, I grabbed that beer and jumped on Zoom with Labor Shadow Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Mark Butler. I really enjoyed the chat. I hope you do, too. Welcome, everybody, to the final session of day one of the National Energy Efficiency Conference, and what a day it's been. I'm pleased to do my debrief that I normally do with the team with um, our mate uh, Mark Butler, who is a, a mainstay of um, the National Energy Efficiency Conference. So I'm not sure how many years in a row you've been been with us, Mark, but it must be must be five or six. We really appreciate your input and appreciate the opportunity to do it in a more relaxed fashion um this year and uh you know i was considering and, and run ran this uh past uh past Rob Murray Leach, I thought, well, maybe we should call this uh, National Energy Efficiency Conference after dark. But he said perhaps that had the wrong connotations, not what we were going for. So we're, it's a sundowner session. And um, and I can report that uh, in solidarity with what South Australia has been through over the last week, the roller coaster that you've been on in terms of lockdowns and the like, um, we're both drinking a South Australian beer. So I've got my my very generic Coopers, no. but I think you've got something more fancy over there, Mark. No, Coopers is old school now in South <laughs> Australia. I, I've now got the Pirate Life, which is is a Port Adelaide craft beer. Um, they have they have a can that actually has the Port Adelaide Football Club prison bar Guernsey on it that sold out within about two hours down in Adelaide. So um, anyway, cheers to you. It's great to be with you virtually. I've um, I've really enjoyed uh, every other energy efficiency conference that I've been able to attend over the last several years. So at least we can do this virtually. Yeah, fabulous. Um, well, look, I know you've been hanging on my every word over the course of today. Did you have any questions or, or anything you wanted to clarify? <laughs> desperately, desperately keen to ask you with your very impressive microphone there, Luke, giving microphone envy, uh, just really about the highlights, the highlights of this conference. It's always been a great opportunity to learn best practice what's happening around the country, but also around the world. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Mark. Look, um, I can re- I can reveal to everyone at home that every time I've been I've gotten on with Mark over the last six months, um, he has given me shit about my microphone. So pleased to see that that uh, trend continue. Look, it's been a great conference, Mark. Um, obviously, my session was outstanding. My my session with uh, Brian Motherway from the International Energy Agency, uh, Joyce Henry from uh, Canada's Office for Energy Efficiency, and of course uh, our mate Innes Willocks from AI Group um, joining uh, joining me. To uh, to talk about the role of stimulus in in uh, Australia's economic recovery and the world's economic recovery, and you know the the takeout for me, Mark, is that um, the world's acting. Um, you know you've got you've got you know big numbers associated with specifically energy efficiency stimulus, largely focused on the building sector upgrades. So you got seven billion euros in France, I think uh, around three billion uh, and counting in the UK. Uh, Canada's got a, a two billion dollar investment through their Canadian. 
Australian Investment Bank, which which actually has some um, similar hallmarks. I think there's some similarities of the way that they're, they're imagining that bank will operate to our own CFC. Um, and then, of course, you know the you know Brian from the IEA specifically called out Victoria's leadership in this space and making the point that at the state level, um, you know, one of the one of the more significant investments around the world, which is a which is an outstanding outcome. Well, it's, it's really interesting. I, I, in the in the broader context, there was um, a fair bit of debate earlier this year as as the recessionary impact of COVID really hit the global economy. Uh, you had seen such a build up of consciousness around climate action and the recognition that good climate action was good for the economy. And there was a debate, I think, uh, harking back to 2007, 2008, 2009, where again you'd seen this sort of global build-up of momentum around action on climate change really hit the skids after the global financial crisis. And people were asking the question whether that momentum that had built up over the last couple of years, leave aside the Donald, um, whether that momentum was going to be stopped in its tracks by the COVID recession. And I think all of your feedback from today, but the feedback broadly we're getting shows that almost every significant economy in the world, big business around the world, sees a recovery from the COVID recession and climate action, good energy policy is going just hand in hand. Yeah, I think you're right, and I think it was a it was a reasonable fear to have that you know the the concerns around health, the concerns around the economy would crowd out everything else, um, and that momentum would get stalled. But if anything, I think we're seeing the opposite. Mm. We're seeing you know um, governments, um, business saying, "Well, we're refactoring, we're we're, we're investing. We have really a, a once in a generation opportunity to set our economies on a different different trajectory." Fascinating that in the in the middle of the you know the most significant global financial crisis in, in decades that you've got economies like Japan and, and South Korea and China making those net zero commitments, Europe really doubling down and, mm-hmm. you know, embracing the, the rhetoric of the New Deal, um, $700 billion of stimulus. And and I, I learnt, uh, Mark, there's about a third of that, a bit over a third of that is, um, is dedicated to climate specifically, um, climate initiatives, um, uh, bending the curve on emissions, so to speak. But the, there's also a, 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 um, a requirement for the rest of it to do no harm. Mm. So when you're thinking about stimulus, um, uh, you know, talking to Brian earlier, earlier today from the International Energy Agency, um, uh, one of the points that he made to me at the start of this crisis was, you know, you don't just look at the green spending, look at the total envelope of spending, because if you've got, you know, some green baubles over here on the side, but then you, you know, you, you, you're backing in old industries that, you know, are going to set you on the wrong path and make, and um, result in investments in, in areas of the economy that are, that are already legacy or, or getting very close to being legacy, then, then the, the net benefit might not be there. Um, so I thought Europe's a really, a really fascinating, um, fascinating example. And also in terms of the renovation wave mm. and, and, you know, the big investments they're looking to make in making buildings and we've still got the us to come yeah uh, and and some some detail to come out in the first half of 21 around china's 14th five-year plan and, and and i've certainly been watching pretty closely this this debate about about what appeared to be a bit of an arm wrestle within the chinese leadership about the details of the 14th five-year plan and whether or not China would sort of back off on their level of ambition around the energy transition and revert to some of their traditional responses to economic challenge, which is a reversion to coal-fired power and big emissions-intensive manufacturing, or whether they double down on that ambition. And the the leaked detail we've got so far indicates 
in the wake of President Xi's announcement at the UN General Assembly about their net zero emissions commitment by 2060, that they're going to double down. And that's yeah. going to have a whole lot of other flow-on impacts in terms of just steepening that cost curve reduction in these new technologies. It really is an incredibly exciting time. And what was your take on the US election? I, I you know, I was sort of watching it. I mean, obviously, it was so it was remarkable for any number of reasons, um, and many of them depressing. But you know, without sort of getting weighed down with um, with the whole Trump melodrama, you know, the fact that you had uh, President-elect Biden put climate at the heart of his presidential campaign in a way that, you know, someone said to me recently um, uh, that not even. Uh, Al Gore talked as much about climate back in 2000 as uh, as, as President-elect Biden did during his his campaign, and and to to prevail and to uh, seemingly be incredibly serious about prosecuting that agenda, notwithstanding the fact he's going to have some some troubles dealing with probably dealing with the Senate, you know, subject to the outcome in, in Georgia and all that kind of stuff. But overall, how did you, what was your reaction to um, the way the climate politics is playing out in the US? Well, my, my reaction, I mean, obviously, the, the, it's hard to imagine uh, just the impact of COVID uh, over, over there. When we look at the numbers, just they're just terrifying, the numbers that, that the US is confronting. So I don't think anyone would, would pretend that the election was, was other than principally a response to the pandemic, yep. the recession yep. that's yep. been hit by the pandemic, and, totally just, and just Trump, who was a referendum on on Trump, yep. race was playing a role um, uh, as well. But but I did make the point, and it and it and it engendered some um, lively lively debate within my own party as well as beyond. I made the point when Biden finally sort of tipped over the line that um, he had taken the most ambitious climate policy that anyone had taken to a US general election, far more ambitious than Obama's or Hillary's from 2016. And he'd spoken about it very openly. And to me, the US election, leaving aside the fact it was primarily driven by these other factors, the pandemic and the recession and a referendum on Trump, did show that that courage, ambition and unity around climate and energy policy uh, can be part of an election-winning formula for for a a major party of government. And I think what was critically important about the US, and it's a very big lesson for us here in Australia for anyone interested in climate policy, good climate and energy policy, is that there was a very substantial debate over there about the details of Biden's platform. But once it was settled, even though a whole bunch of people didn't agree with every detail of it, they all got behind it. They all rode in the same direction. You didn't see, you know, those which we would describe on the left of politics here in Australia or in the business community who are interested in, in good investment policy fighting amongst themselves, even though there was lots of disappointment by the Sunrise Movement, by some politicians within the Democrats, that Biden, for example, didn't ban fracking, they all rode in the same direction. I think there's Mm -hmm. got to be a lesson in that for us, not just the the question of ambition, not just the question of courage. Biden talked openly about this in every state, including Pennsylvania, that has a very big fracking industry, uh, but also the idea of unity. And I think we've got to take a lesson from that. Yeah, look, there is a bit of a tendency um, from, you know, well-meaning people who are all pulling, you know, theoretically in the same uh, direction to kind of tear themselves apart over over small differences (laughs) between, you know, various various climate uh, and energy policies. But in that context, actually, um, I'm catching up with uh, for Matt Keane on day three of the conference and um, 
Um, one of the things that's been remarkable about, uh, you know, some of the recent energy policies he's introduced in there in New South Wales, you know, without getting into the detail of them because um, I'm halfway through a beer, um, the, 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 the cross-party support that a coalition government in New South Wales, our largest state, mm. has uh, achieved, um, everyone from the Nationals to the Greens backing in that big uh, energy infrastructure Roadmap. I mean, what are the lessons for that? Not, not, not Mark Latham, though. Well, no. Not Mark, not Mark Latham. <laughs> so if everyone else is over here and Mark's over there, then there must be something spot well, on about that. Well, that's policy. telling in itself, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, I, I mean, I think, I think um, Minister Keane's doing a, a really impressive job. Uh, again, it's that ambition. It's, it's courage. It's recognising the economics, recognising that it requires someone to stand up and take on Many in the media who think this is all rubbish and we should stick with um, stick with something else. Uh, I think he's doing a fabulous job, and uh, yeah, I think there really was a sliding doors moment there a few years ago when Malcolm Turnbull was still the prime minister. For us to have achieved that same level of unity, maybe not with you know everyone within the coalition or everyone from the Greens and the crossbench, but we would have got ninety percent of the parliament behind the mm. national energy guarantee, mm-hmm. and I think that would have been a, just a, a signature moment for for the nation. Sure, we would have disagreed and continued to debate around levels of ambition and yep. and some other things, but to be able to demonstrate an ability just to land a policy across the aisle, which is what Matt appears to be in the process of achieving New South Wales, mm. would have, a, I just think, an enormous stimulus to confidence um, mm. in the community, but also in business. Well, one of the things as a as someone that plays a very straight bat, as you know, Mark, and is interested in kind of building building a consensus in 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 the middle of the political debate. You know what's what New South Wales is doing, and 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 to be fair, what South Australia is doing as well. Um, you know, very sort of pragmatic, practical, sort of focused on the economics, focused on delivering for their constituents, working their way through this 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 energy transition that that um, is is ahead of us. Um, it, it, it's incredibly encouraging. Because um, you know there has been this sort of you know schizophrenia in Australian politics around around climate climate and energy and um, and what we're seeing at the state level is a model for how conservative governments can prosecute an agenda and Absolutely. succeed, right? Absolutely. I, I mean, I think you landed from another planet or, or another country without any understanding of Australian politics and just analyse the energy plans of of all of the NEM states mm. uh, at least. Um, I don't think you'd be able to pick a political difference yep. between them. I don't think yep. you'd say that, that one state was a conservative state and one was a social democratic or Labor state. Mm. It's really encouraging. Uh, and um, you know, it still does require Canberra to come to the party. Mm. You know, I think that is still a missing, a very significant missing piece of the jigsaw puzzle, that there, there is still um, division within the parliament in Canberra. But... Uh, we saw this a bit, you know, 15 years ago, um, states just getting on with the business, kicking off a whole bunch of, of energy efficiency programs, uh, renewable energy programs. In the case of New South Wales, GGAS, the first emissions trading scheme really in the, in the, on the planet. Uh, so, so we've seen this before where there's a vacuum at a national level. Um, states... Labor and Liberal alike can get on with it in the meantime. Yep. I guess we've all got to then understand how that all knits together at a national 
national level. I think that's right. Um, and it is, there is going to be a task at some point <laughs> needing, doing that knitting because at the moment there is that patchwork. Mm-hmm. And when I talk, when I talk to business, uh, it is challenging navigating all of that. Um, but, you know, it, it, at present, um, given that there, there isn't that overarching policy framework, um, I can't even count the number of state energy ministers that have said to me, well, <laughs> Luke, you know, I would like a national framework, but I'm not going to wait for one. Right. Exactly, nor should they. Mm. And their communities are demanding action. Yeah. So if they can't get it from Canberra, they're going to get it from their state government. The conversation you're listening to is just a taste of this year's National Energy Efficiency Conference, which featured 70 local and international speakers and 20 fantastic sessions covering all the big issues in energy efficiency, energy management and demand response. But if you missed the conference, don't worry. Every session was recorded and access passes are available that will allow you to watch fantastic discussions on topics such as driving a renovation wave in Australia, embedding efficiency in the national electricity market, and the future of gas, hydrogen and electrification in buildings and industry. To get your pass and catch up on the conference at your own pace, visit eec.org.au forward slash conference. You are mentioning uh, Malcolm Turnbull's sliding doors moment. He's had a couple of those, hasn't he? He has, and and it was a real it was a real tragedy um, for the nation, and frankly, a tragedy for him as well. Mm. Uh, cost him the prime ministership, and and as as an observer, very close to to the action at the time, uh, I think he I think he would admit in his quieter moments he made a misjudgment, thinking that caving into Tony Abbott and Tony Abbott's allies like Angus Taylor at the time was somehow going to win him some brownie points with them. At the end of the day, it didn't. Um, and, and, and I think with the benefit of hindsight, he would have been better off just just barreling his way through. I think the community would have given him um, enormous credit for having done that. But he didn't. Um, it's great to see him playing a really significant role as a former Prime Minister in the public debate. He's been very active in the debate within New South Wales. I've seen him at the AFR Summit uh, giving some constructive criticism as he's given to all of us at different times through his career. I've certainly got my share of it. <laughs> well, he's, he's not shy about expressing an opinion, um, uh, nor is uh, the form, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd. I see uh, Malcolm Turnbull and Kevin Rudd have seemed to have formed some sort of double act. Um, I, I really enjoyed their interview on Insiders. Um, it was you... fabulous. It was just fabulous. Well, it, um, uh, uh, Malcolm said, uh, what did he say? He said, um, uh, Kevin Rudd and I don't agree on much. And then he, you know, Kevin said, Michael and I don't agree with much, but they proceeded to agree with each other on everything for 20 minutes. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I remember when they were opposite each other in dispatch box, I was a relatively new member of parliament. They agreed on very little, uh, very little. <laughs> well, we all grow, right, Mark? <laughs> yeah, they do. They do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, uh, where where are you at in your cycle? Uh, I suppose we. I mean, I you know you, you might express a view on this. I, I, I guess there's a, there's a lot of commentators that um, are anticipating a um, uh, an election before the end of next year. Um, you know, you'll be putting together a, a policy a policy agenda. Um, you know, without sort of getting into the specifics over a beer. Um, what what are, what's on your radar? What are the what are the big sort of questions that you feel like you need to resolve? Um, uh, to uh, to land land an election winning energy and climate agenda. Well, uh, as I think people might have picked up after the last election, which was our third loss in a row, we took the view that we needed to take a root and branch review of mm. all of our policies, not just climate and energy, but across yep. health and across education, everything else 
tax, importantly, um, and we're in the process really of sort of building from the ground up our our policies to take to the next election. So we've we've announced some some core pillars, if you like, uh, in my space, my portfolio area. Obviously, the net zero emissions commitment by 2050, which we've had as a commitment for some years and is now frankly, pretty orthodox. I mean, mm. every Liberal Labor state government has it. Um, pretty much every business organisation yep. and such like. And around the world, as you know, 70% of our, our trade is conducted with countries that have also made that commitment as well. So we, we, we made that early on, recognising that although you review your policies, it doesn't mean you're reviewing your principles. I mean, we're not reviewing our commitment to Medicare, even though we're going through a pretty thorough review of our health policies. Mm-hmm. Uh, as part of the really a core part of Anthony's budget reply speech a few weeks ago, uh, we announced a rewiring the nation commitment of $20 yep. billion to, yep. to leverage the extraordinarily low cost of borrowing for the Commonwealth Government to ensure that the, the new grid, the modern energy grid we need to connect mm-hmm. up all of these new renewable energy zones is built, first of all, effectively, but but also at the cheapest possible cost. You know, leveraging the Commonwealth's borrowing capacity could potentially save literally hundreds of millions of dollars in interest when you compare the private borrowing costs uh, every year. So we think that sort of stuff is a no-brainer. We now have to fill in those core pillars with more detail. And quite how much detail we'll go into has obviously been... Uh, the subject of some debate as well. We took an incredibly detailed policy platform to the people last election. Uh, so, so we'll be filling in that detail. We really want to make sure that we're we're completely up to date with some of the best ideas in uh, your space, Luke. Uh, we've really valued the engagement we've had. We recognise, um, you know, your nonpartisan role as as a council. You, your need to work both sides of the aisles, work with state governments as well as um, the two major parties and crossbenchers as well at a federal level. We, we, we really do respect that and we want to continue working with you over the coming several months as we put that policy together. Mm-hmm. It's, going to be a, it's going to be a really trying sort of several months for Australia, though. I mean, I think we are touch wood coming through the worst of it. We will continue to see... Um, outbreaks like the one we saw last week in South Australia. But I think South Australia has demonstrated our ability, learning what we've learned over the last several months, to jump on these things very quickly, yeah. uh, to jump on them hard, but to get through it relatively quickly so that um, the, the interruption to ordinary daily life and to the economy is, is very limited. But we know every recession has a relatively long tail. Mm. I mean, the 1980s recession took nine quarters to return to the pre-recession level of economic output. The 1990s recession took six or seven quarters from memory. So even the Reserve Bank is saying we're probably right at the end of 2021 before we get back to the pre-COVID levels of economic output. And even then, we'll still have a whole range of risks to the economy, like potentially closed borders, um, population, immigration, all those sorts of things being heavily hit as well. So these are going to be a tough 12 months for not just Australia, obviously, around the world, many countries are doing it much tougher than us. So it will be an election campaign, the likes of which we haven't really seen for 25 or 30 years. Uh, as an observer, as you, as you say, um, you know, have to, an, an impartial observer, it, it's really, without getting into the specifics, it's going to be an election campaign that is about what the vision is for the Australian recovery. 
right? That's right. You know, what the pathway that to the Australian people want to go down. And um, I, I suspect, you know, we'll see, but, um, I, you know, there'll be quite two quite different visions put before the Australian people for how that recovery should be should be prosecuted and um, um, it'll be it'll be fascinating to see where it all where it all lands um, and, and you, you're absolutely right about how how we how lucky we are here in Australia and I speak as a, as a Melbourneian who you know um, you know uh, you know without sort of um, uh, you know overplaying it it has been a, a rough three or four months but um, um, with with uh, one of the things, one of the fun things about this this period is that it's actually it's actually deepened our engagement with the energy efficiency community around the world. Um, I've been talking much more often than I would normally do um, with my, my um, uh, counterparts and um, you know different government agencies and, and bodies like the IEA. Um, and um, in almost every conversation, say, well, you know, where are you in your you know COVID journey? And often, you know, they're in lockdown or they're coming out of lockdown or they're going into lockdown. And, um, Europe is um, is uh, in, in very dire straits, as you said earlier. The US really hit. I think yet again we're almost in that space we were in in the global financial crisis, where we we don't quite appreciate as a nation how incredibly lucky we are in mm. terms of our position relative to our global peers. And, and you know, obviously this is a, a, a much deeper and profound crisis and a multifaceted mm. crisis than the one that we faced in, even in, in, in 2000 and 2008, 2009. But um, nevertheless, uh, when I'm talking to people, just trying to remind people, remind people of is um, even in Melbourne, it's like, well, yes, that was a hard three or four months. But you know what? It's you know what what um, you know our friends, um, uh, our allies uh, um, around the world, what they're going through is you know 10, 20, 20 times worse in many cases. And what a remarkable achievement Melbourne was. Um, mm. You know there are a number of <clears throat> a number of jurisdictions around the world that that saw that second wave emerge with pretty much the same trajectory Melbourne had mm. uh, in June, July, whenever it was. You know getting up to about seven hundred cases. And if you look at pretty much all of them, they kept climbing. Uh, and it's very hard to find another jurisdiction in the world of that size, of your size, of Victoria's size, that, that not only got on top of a second wave but smashed it, mm. absolutely smashed it. And it was tough. I'm sure it was tough, but um, it's an absolute credit to the Victorian people. Well, well, here's one for you. I know it's the, you know, the... the the national unity has, has frayed a little bit um, in the last couple of months. It's been tested, but we did. We have had this sort of example of um, uh, federal and, and, and state governments working together in in a common cause and making some quite profound and, and uh, consequential decisions very quickly. What's your take on the national cabinet, and you know whether that's the exact model or um, or uh, you know whether it needs to evolve over time? But um, it, have we learnt something in terms of how state governments and federal governments can w- work together um, for 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 a national outcome in the national interest? Look, I, I think it's important to get the national cabinet in, into perspective. I think I think it worked effectively um, within limitations at the time mm. it needed to, uh, and uh, and that's important. That's that's been really important. I mean, at the end of the day, it was essentially coag with different procedures, so it wasn't an entirely revolutionary thing. The idea that premiers and prime minister could should come together at a time of national crisis is you know doesn't require a Rhodes Scholar, um, uh, but but you know it was effective. 
but I think at the end at the end of the day, um, you know, some some more robust procedures around it are going to have to develop. I mean, for mm-hmm. example, uh, access to to an understanding of what's going on in these committees is mm-hmm. is important. We don't have that, for example, in the energy space and many other spaces. So, so some of the things that crept up around cabinet confidentiality, I think, that need need to be loosened. Um, they, these these processes should be should be as open as the coag process used to be, mm. so that the community and stakeholders understand what is going on. Um, uh, and uh, you know, I, I guess we'll see. I mean, what we are seeing is a return to to a, a normal level of political debate. Um, you know, and, that, and that's healthy. You do want you you do want healthy debate, particularly at a time like like this, so that the community. Is confident that that there is intellectual contest yep. um, about the best way forward for the nation, and I, and I think we'll get to that. I think I think a really critical thing, though, that hopefully will come out of this last several months, is a a return to a healthy respect for scientific advice, and and that that's been certainly in the area for which I have responsibility. Frankly, too often lacking. You know, we've got such a great history of respect for the scientific method and for our scientific leaders. I know many of those in the scientific community have been quite shocked over the last 10 or 15 years at, at the, the toxicity of some of the commentary within Parliament and within many in the media around climate science. And I hope that our, the respect we admirably have shown in Australia, by and large, with a few exceptions, to good health advice translates to um, scientific advice in other critical areas of challenge. It's a, it's a great note to end on. I, I want to thank you, um, Mark, for um, uh, accommodating our, our cheeky request to catch up for a beer at the end of the day of the National Energy Efficiency Conference. But I, I think um, everybody uh, everybody has been power pointed out. They've got to, they've had enough content. And I, think, I hope everybody's enjoyed enjoyed um, our chat and, um, and our reflection, not just on on today, but probably it's been a massive year for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure these sorts of conversations over beer and um, are happening around the country, just as as we all try and work out what the hell just happened, <laughs> and, and, and how we how we chart a, a course forward. So, um, uh, good luck to you there in South Australia. It sounds like you've got it all under control, which is a, is a fantastic outcome. Um, you know, you, uh, where our thoughts are with you here in Melbourne as well, and um, and yeah, looking forward to continuing to engage with you um, over over the coming months as uh, you put to, you put together your your policy agenda, and I'm um, looking forward to a robust contest of ideas in probably 2021 about the pathway forward for for Australia. Great to see you, Luke, and all the best for the rest of your conference. Beauty, thank you, Mark.